Gracious God, may only your words be spoken and your words be heard. Amen. If you trace the steps of Jesus and Jesus' disciples in this passage, you notice that it moves at a dizzying pace. And if we were to read again from the beginning of Mark's gospel to this point in Mark's gospel, we'd be even more aware of the scope and the pacing of Mark's story. As one biblical commentary put it, in just a few verses, we have been swept up into an exciting crescendo of activity. Hardly has the good news been announced when John the Baptist appears on the scene gathering crowds who respond to his persuasive preaching of the forgiveness of sins. The promised one who is coming arrives, is baptized, the heavens are split, a voice announces divine favor, Jesus announces the good news of God's reign has already arrived, he calls hearers to repentance and faith, a group of fisher folks suddenly abandon their former lives and follow him, immediately Jesus leads them to a synagogue on the Sabbath, where crowds marvel at his authoritarian, authoritative preaching and his power to exorcise demonic powers. Three times in succession, once in last Sunday's gospel and now twice in the opening words of today's gospel, we hear the word immediately, immediately, immediately. One of Mark's favorite words used 14 times in these first two chapters alone. A paradox is that Jesus and his followers were so busy, and yet there was no sense of being hurried, no sense of burnout, or even annoyance. Simon and his companions hunted for him, tracked him down. Everyone is searching for you. Jesus' response, let's go. Let's move on. Let's go with what's next. So, what is the key? How to be busy, but not hurried? I think part of the answer is that Jesus' heart and God's heart were in sync. In the morning... While it was still very dark, he got out and went to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Jesus' heart and God's heart were in sync. Do you remember the scene in the movie The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy and the Scarecrow meet the Tin Man stuck in the woods? He's just standing there, unable to move, barely able to talk. All he can say at first is, oil can. And they get the hint, and they start oiling him in different places, and eventually he's able to talk, eventually able to move his arms again, and eventually able to move his whole body, and the Tin Man accompanies them, and they're off to see the wizard. But the movie left out 
a crucial part of the story which the author gave in the original written fairy tale. The Tin Man had once been a real man, a normal human. And this real normal human had been deeply in love. It was the real man's life dream, in fact, to marry the love of his life once he could earn enough money to build them a cottage in the woods. But the wicked witch hated his love. And so she cast spells on the man that caused him injury, one by one, so that his limbs needed to be replaced with artificial ones made of tin. That's a crucial part of the story, I think. Not only because it makes the story richer and better, but because the original, the book, does what most of great literature does, which is to take evil seriously. Notice how many times the word demon is mentioned in today's gospel. The passage is not an outlier. Jesus coming up against demonic or foul spirits is a consistent theme. So I want to take a minute and say something about demons and the reality of foul spirits and then return to that tin man. Back up a minute and remember that from a biblical or a scriptural worldview or perspective, the world is good. When we start reading this Bible, we recognize right away that creation is good. Human beings are created in the image and likeness of God and are called very good and placed into a world of abundance and joy. It is not until later. You have to keep turning the page in your Bible to read about things going very badly, the fall of humankind. But the world and humanity created good. God's intentions for us are health and peace and abundant joy. Illness and premature death, discord, division, prejudices, racisms, hatreds are not God's will. Jesus, whom we Christians believe not just to be a great prophet or someone very close to God, but God God's self, God incarnate, light from light, God from God, true God from true God who came down from heaven. Jesus spent, while on earth, an extraordinary amount of time delivering human beings from sickness, healing people of what ailed them. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. Why do you think he paired those two statements? It's because the life, the love life, the peace life, the joy life that we are created for is not automatic. It is opposed. It's as if over in one corner is Jesus, God on earth, offering not just life, but fullness of life and abundance of life. And in an opposite corner, 
someone, some force or forces that are seeking to kill, steal, and destroy that life. It's what the Book of Common Prayer's baptismal covenant refers to as Satan and the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God, the evil powers of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. So yes, unapologetically, the imagery is one of a fight, of a battle. It is a fight, it is a battle for our hearts. The author, John Eldridge, asks a good question. Do you ever wonder why every great story has a villain? Little Red Riding Hood's attacked by a wolf. Dorothy must face and bring down the Wicked Witch of the West. Obi-Wan Kenobi goes hand-to-hand against Darth Maul. To release the captives of the Matrix, Neo battles the powerful agents. Frodo is hunted by the Black Riders. Beowulf kills the monster Grendel and then has to battle Grendel's mother. St. George slays the dragon. The children who stumble into Narnia are called upon Aslan to battle the White Witch and her armies that Narnia might be free. Every story has a villain because yours does. You were born into a world at war. We have an enemy. The enemy is trying to steal our freedom, kill our hearts, and wreck our lives. Mostly by killing our hearts. So back to the Wizard of Oz. The tin woodman had once been a real man, a real human who had been deeply in love. It was the real man's dream to marry the love of his life once he could earn enough money to build him a cottage in the woods. From the book, the wicked witch hated his love and she cast spells upon the man that caused him injury so that one by one his limbs needed to be replaced with artificial ones made of tin. At first it seemed an advantage, for his metal frame allowed him to work nearly as powerfully as a machine. With a heart of love and arms that never tired, he seemed sure to win. I thought I had beaten the wicked witch then and I worked harder than ever, but I little knew how cruel my enemy could be. She thought of a new way to kill my love, and she made my axe slip again that it cut right through my body splitting it in two halves. Once more, the tinner came to my help and made me a body tin, fastening my tin arms and legs and head to it by means of joints so that I could now move around as well as ever. But alas, I now had no heart. I lost my love and did not care whether I married her or not. Eventually, he forgets to oil himself, and he rusts in place. And that's when Dorothy and the Scarecrow discover him. He says this in the novel. It was a terrible thing to undergo, but during the year that I stood there, I had time to think that the greatest loss I had known was the loss of my heart. While I was in love, I was the happiest man on earth. But no one can love who has not a heart. And so I am resolved to ask Oz 
to give me one. Our hearts are key. Again, Jesus and his disciples were busy, but they never seemed to be in a hurry. Their hearts were in sync with God's heart. I want to challenge you to use the time of Lent, the season of Lent, to recover or to rediscover your heart. And a major way to do that is through rest. To create times of deliberate solitude, time to go to your deserted place and be alone with God. If God incarnate, the one who could walk on water and summon angels and raise the dead, if, if Jesus needed rest and time away from others, why wouldn't we? If Jesus needed time by himself, time to just disappear every once in a while to a deserted place, to escape from people and pressure for a while before the day's activity began, before he began anew, then why wouldn't we? But notice this. As you begin to take the notion of rest seriously, pay attention to the voices inside and outside of your head as they start clamoring and protesting. Rest? Huh, what a luxury. With all that there is to do, who can afford to take the time to rest? With all that there is to do, who can afford not to take the time to rest? We are created in the image of God, created in the image and likeness of our creative, resting, one day in seven, loving, grace-filled, expansive God. What does resting in God and recovering your heart look like for you? For some of you, it may be as simple as reading a novel in a hot bath. For others, it may be breaking a sweat on the long run. For others, it might be finding a quiet, deserted place early in the morning for conversational intimacy with God. Whatever it is, and however you must make it, make it. Make it happen. Use the gift of the season of Lent to make it happen. Because the world, not just those around you on a daily basis, but the world, needs you to recover your heart. They need you to be filled and then, and only then, sent back out into the world, filled with courage, creativity, and the grace-filled, expansive love of God.